Good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to Chatham Community Church. My name is Jaime. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad that y'all are here with us this morning. I want to extend a particularly warm welcome to those of you who are joining us on the live stream. Welcome. We're so glad you're joining us this morning. If you have, have had an opportunity, thank you for saying hi in the chat. If you haven't, please make sure to say hi to us in the chat and let us know that you are worshiping with us. If you are new or relatively new to Chatham Community Church, you may not know that we are one church in multiple locations. And so we have, uh, in addition to the group that gathers with us online, we have a group of people that joins us on Sunday mornings in Chatham Mills down in Pittsburgh. And normally I am with them, and Alex Kirk, who's our lead pastor, is here with y'all. But uh, today we decided to switch, and so I get a chance to be with you, and Alex gets a chance to be with our folks down in Pittsburgh. So if you've not met Alex, if you're, if you're a guest today, please come back next week. Uh, Alex is a great pastor, a great communicator, uh, a great guy. I'm sure you'd love meeting him, but I'm glad I get to spend time with you here today. Uh, the Silo Trilogy is a series of science fiction books written by Hugh Howley that take place in a post-apocalyptic earth. In this post-apocalyptic earth, human, the humans that live, that, that live and that remain live in a subterranean structure. It's 144 floors heading down under the earth. It's a self-sustaining city that's known as the Silo, hence the title of the series. Now, little is known in this world about the time before the silo, the time before humans lived in the silo. But what is known and what is communicated often in an ongoing way is that the world outside of the silo is dangerous, that everything outside of the silo is toxic, and that anyone that ventures out dies. And this fact is reinforced every time someone is sent out of the silo. It's one of the punishments for violating a key rule of the silo. You get sent out of the silo. As people are sent out of the silo, footage is transmitted that sees them venturing out of the silo and sort of staggering their way out. And as they start to reach the edges of what the camera can see, they collapse and die. And you know it's not just a recording that they play over and over again because as the years pass, you see the body sort of mounting up in similar spots. Things change suddenly. When the hero of the story, a woman named Juliet Nichols, not only survives heading out of the silo and heading out of sight, but one day returns and returns telling, telling stories about other silos that exist. And in those other silos, there are other people. And she starts to encourage people not only to venture outside eventually, but to start being in contact and building connection with those people in those other silos. Now, you think this revelation would shake everybody in the silo in a similar way. You think, oh, we've been cooped up in this silo for generations and we can actually head outside. Let's go. And lots of people do just that. They, they, they are with Juliet. They want to head outside. But there are other people who want to silence her, and they want to maintain the status quo. Still others refuse to believe what she has to say. She says, if you can survive outside the silo. She is living proof of that, and they refuse to believe that. And still others see all the chaos that is happening and try to leverage the situation to gain power for themselves, to benefit themselves. Now, why is there such a diverse set of reactions to this revelation that what they've been told is not necessarily true. Well, because what's happened is that the prevailing understanding of how things work has been shaken. The prevailing understanding of what reality is like has been challenged. And when those kinds of things happen, 
people respond all sorts of different ways. Throughout our series, Spiritual Power in Everyday Places, we've been talking about what it looks like for you and I to receive the gift Jesus has given us, a gift of spiritual authority that enables us to affect the spiritual environment in the places that we live, that we work, and that we play, to change that environment for good. One of the ways we do that is by speaking into the spiritual realm in such a way that things in the spiritual realm respond And we see evidence of that response. We can perceive it with our senses. The passages we've studied throughout this series all come from the New Testament. And they all either encompass Jesus or his disciples going into places or carrying the spiritual authority and changing the spiritual atmosphere for good by communicating this idea that the kingdom of God has come, that salvation has come, and that it is breaking through. They did this through their words, And they did this through demonstrations of spiritual power as people are healed and as people who are oppressed by evil spirits are freed. And this is not what people are used to in the first century. It challenged and it shook what people both Jewish and Gentile understood as how things worked. And the people respond in all sorts of ways. The passage that Elizabeth read for us just recently covers a wide swath of responses. So today we're going to walk through that passage in in part to note some of the ways that people might respond to us as we move into this bringing spiritual power into everyday places so that we can be aware of how people might respond, but also so that when people respond that way, we know what our next step might be. Now, the passage starts with brief summaries, two brief summaries of preaching stints in Paul's time in Ephesus. One takes place in a synagogue, and it covers a time period of three months. And the other is likely in a lecture hall where both Jews and Gentiles would have gathered, and it lasts for two years. Now, here's the thing. The message Paul preaches in both places is likely the same at its core, even if there may be particularities of how we share that might have been different. Paul's compelling nature and his effectiveness as a communicator are likely consistent at both place, at both locations as well. But the length of the teaching stint and the fruit of the teaching stints are vastly different. Why was the experience at the synagogue so brief, and why was the fruit seemingly only animosity and antagonism? Well, part of it has to do with how the people in the synagogue respond to Paul. The scripture tells us that they are not just resistant, but that they are obstinate in their resistance. Think about this. Paul is communicating with all this sort of spiritual authority, with all this sort of of knowledge. Paul is compelling. He is persuasive. He, He knows that, or we know that that type of communication is actually fruitful, but for some reason, for some reason, the people in the synagogue don't respond. It's a principle that is true not just in Paul's time but in our time as well and that is that people can resist even the most compelling and power-filled communication of God's truth. Now Paul isn't the only one who's been sent to communicate God's truth. All of us have been sent with the authority of Jesus to declare his good news in the places and in the relationships, in the situations God has called us to so that people would turn to Jesus 
And listen, there are days where we feel that we are, like, are doing that to the best of our ability, that we have hit our stride, that everything we're saying is anointed by God, that we are connecting the dots, that what we're saying is compelling. We're not stumbling our words. We've got divine revelation. And still, we find that the people we're sharing this with don't respond. They reject it anyway. Now, when that happens, does that mean that we are wrong and we didn't actually have spiritual authority to communicate these words? Does it mean that we didn't have power in our communication? No, no. When you read the stories of Jesus in the Gospels, you see a number of things. You see that nature responds to Jesus' authority when he speaks to it. You see that bodies are restored to health with Jesus' authority when he speaks to them. You see that evil spirits respond to Jesus' authority when he speaks to them and they leave. And then people, people sometimes do what Jesus asks them to do. And sometimes they don't. Once again, even the most compelling, authoritative, power-filled communication of God's transforming truth can be resisted by people. Why? Because let's be honest, some of us think, think life would be a lot easier if people just did what we told them to do, in Jesus' name, of course. Just the good stuff. Well, it's because we have agency. We have been given the choice, and you may think this choice is nonsensical, but we have it, that even in the face of compelling and convicting arguments that we would be fools to reject, we have been given agency to say no even to that. Friends, we have been given a will. And if there is no will to change inside of us or inside the people we are communicating to, clarity and effectiveness of communication is not necessarily going to win the day. So why doesn't Paul just wait? Because we know that a no today is not necessarily a no tomorrow. That resistance today doesn't necessarily mean resistance tomorrow. I mean, we have probably experienced some changes in our own lives that started by us encountering them with resistance and eventually, we were like, all right, we need to consider this. So why doesn't Paul just wait them out? Well, because it seems like they were no longer engaging in good faith. They were no longer engaging in good faith dialogue with him. And not only that, but they had resorted to maligning his credibility and maligning the reputation of the burgeoning Christian community. Paul staying at that place and continuing to try to win them over with compelling arguments could have led to long-term negative effects not only for him and the people, but it could have damaged the credibility of the burgeoning Christian community. Some of us find ourselves hitting walls with people, with people that we want to see experience the freeing grace of God. That might be you today. There are people that you love, people that you care for, people that you're interested in, that you communicate every chance you get God's truth and God, God's love for them, and you find yourself hitting a wall. And I don't want to suggest this flippantly, but I want to invite us to consider that it might be time to press pause or to change venue when there is a lack of openness in those we are communicating to, particularly if there's obstinate resistance. Now, I'm not suggesting that we abandon people, but it might be time to take a different tactic and stop trying to convince people with our words. So take some time right now and consider those relationships that you're in, those people that you're trying to communicate God's truth to because you love them, because you know it's what's good for them, because you know that their lives would be completely different if they gave themselves, if they gave this a chance. Take some time and consider the fruit thus far. For your relationship with them, 
for the credibility of the gospel, for the credibility of Christians. And also listen to the Spirit. Because there may be times where the invitation is to stick around. But listen to the Spirit. Because the Spirit will tell you, is it time to pause? Is it time to move on and find a different audience, at least for a time? Now, I don't want to move past this without acknowledging that for many of us, those we are speaking to are people that we love deeply. They're our family. They're close friends. They're people that we care about. Do we just give up on them? Do we just give up hope that they would ever encounter the freeing grace and love of God? No. People have all sorts of different barriers and sources of resistance to the gospel and to God's truth and love. Barriers of the will, the willingness to change, can only be torn down from the inside. Only the person themselves can decide that they are open to change. But there are other barriers that we can work on. There are relational barriers of trusting Christians, of healing from wounds from the church or from other Christians that came before, maybe wounds that we have inflicted ourselves. Those can always be brought down by warmth and ongoing signs of trustworthiness. So press in and continue to maintain or tear down, maintain those walls torn down or tear them down. People have intellectual barriers, and those can always be addressed by thoughtfulness and a willingness to engage in conversation or point people to resources when questions come up. But there are also spiritual barriers. What can we do about those? Well, in one of Jesus' parables, he uses agricultural language to illustrate different factors that affect how people respond to God's message and whether or not it will take root in their hearts and bear fruit in their lives. And one of the factors that he names is spiritual resistance, is the opposition and the work of the evil one. And in that parable, Jesus likens it to a bird that will come and eat up a seed that is thrown on the ground before it has a chance to take root. So here's what we can do to continue to bring spiritual power into relationships where we may not be able or may need to press pause on sharing with our words. Bind the birds. Bind the birds. Think of the people that you want to see come to God and pray against all spiritual resistance. Pray against all work of the evil one in their lives. Pray that it be cast far, far away. We may need to pause conversing about God for a season with people, but we need not cease to bring spiritual power into that relationship for their good. Bind the birds. Bind whatever might keep them spiritually from being open to God. Now, the passage goes on to relate, after the preaching instances, some pretty significant instances of spiritual power. They are particularly unique in the, in the stories and acts, and they are a little bit wild, right? We have everything from handkerchiefs being taken to, like, an evil spirit beating up a group of people. There are extraordinary miracles that God, that God does through Paul. There are healings and evil spirits cast out with, uh, with, with sort of instruments that Paul had or that had touched Paul. And there's this encounter that's even a little bit scary with the sons of Sceva. Now that reality, that situation may feel foreign and distant to us. And in fact, we may never find ourselves in exactly that type of situation. But there are some spiritual principles in that section that I don't want us to miss. Here's one. Gospel proclamation works together with spiritual power to draw people to God. 
What you see in both the section that talks about the preaching and at the end of the section that has all these demonstrations of spiritual power is that people are drawn to God. People are drawn to God. People turn to him. The point of communicating God's truth, the point of, being, of communicating in a compelling way, the point of having demonstrations of spiritual power, of seeing people healed, of seeing people freed, the point of bringing spiritual power to everyday places and affecting the spiritual environment is not to make a name for ourselves. It's not to make a name for our church. It's not to build our brand and to show ourselves as knowledgeable or holy or anything like that. It's that people would come to Jesus. It's that people would experience the freedom and life change that comes with knowing him. That is the point. And that's what you see in both these instances. And it's true for us as well. Whether our invitation is to bring to bear spiritual authority and power through our words or through our prayers and our affecting of the spiritual environment, the goal is always to point people to Jesus and to draw them to a life-changing relationship with him. Now, I don't want to ignore some of the specifics here. There are lots of questions that we could ask about this deal with the handkerchiefs and aprons, and in fact, some people have taken advantage of that and built up very profitable ministries on doing things like that. We could have lots of conversations about that, and I'm happy to do that after the service, but there's something I don't want us to miss about what's going on here. And that is this. When those people in Ephesus had a deep need that required spiritual power, they thought of Paul. They thought of Paul because of what they'd heard him talk about and because of the stories they'd heard or things they'd seen about how spiritual power was brought to bear throughout his ministry. It was not just true in Ephesus. It's been true throughout history that people have had spiritual needs and have had spiritual questions when they have those needs when they have those questions who do they go to who will they go to who do the people in our lives go to when they have spiritual questions or they find themselves in need of spiritual power I heard tell of groups of people who went overseas to bring the gospel, the message of Jesus, to places that had never heard about Jesus before. They'd gotten training in how to cross cultures. They'd gotten training in how to learn the language. They hadn't, they'd gotten training on how to build trust. They'd had gotten training on how to share the faith in that particular context. And when they come back, they talk about the great relationships they built. They talk about the church that had been started. They talked about people who attended those churches and became Christians. But they also talked about how those people, when their kids had gotten sick in ways that medicine could not solve, or when they needed a crop to come through, they didn't come to the church. They went to the shaman. And when they were asked why, why they didn't come to the church, why didn't they come to these people who'd gone there to share about Jesus, they said, well, because the shaman knows about spiritual power. The shaman knows about that. After relating that, when they'd come back, they'd turn to their sending organization or their theological training schools, and they'd say, why didn't you teach us about that? Why didn't you empower us to go with that? See, when they went, they didn't engage with bringing spiritual power, so they had no credibility when spiritual needs emerged. Friends, let's live in such a way that when people have spiritual needs or questions, they think of us. Not because of us, 
but because of the God that we represent, the God that has sent us, the God that has empowered us. We build that credibility by bringing spiritual power to the places, situations, and relationships that God has called us to. When we live into the spiritual authority we've been given and bring spiritual power to everyday places, people will start to think of us when they have a spiritual question or a spiritual need. And when that happens, we get to point them to the God who delivers, the God who brings breakthrough, the God who fears. So pray for peace in the places that you're at. And when you hear people notice that the atmosphere has changed, share that you've been praying for that. Share that you've been asking God to change the spiritual atmosphere. When you tell stories, don't filter out the parts that God has played in your story. When someone shares a need, don't just say how you are going to physically help meet that need, but share how you're going to pray that God meets them in the midst of that need. Build credibility because you've been given the spiritual power that is most credible that is most able, and that is available to them. Now, what's going on with those sons of Sceva? What's the deal with getting beat up by an evil spirit? How come when they go out to bring spiritual power and they use the name of Jesus, because we've learned that if cast out in the name of Jesus, the evil spirits have to go, how come it backfires? What we gather in reading what they did is that though they were using the name of Jesus, they had no connection to Jesus. But they still tried to use his name. Now, they're in a city that's very familiar with magical practices and spiritual things. And the practice in those places or in that place was to overpower spirits with stronger spirits. So if you found a stronger spirit than the spirit that was doing something you didn't like, you could use that spirit's name to tell that other spirit to go or to do whatever you wanted it to. You could overpower that, strong, that other spirit. So what they're doing is they're trying to leverage a spirit. They're trying to leverage a God that has seemingly shown up in Ephesus more powerful than anything they've encountered with more ability. But this is not a God or a spirit who gets accessed by leverage and by formulas. This is a God whose power is accessed by connection and relationship and surrender. What they're doing is they're trying to leverage the authority of Jesus without welcoming it and abiding by it. And when we try to do that, it leads to disaster. And it's not just true in this passage. It's not that we're going to get beat up by evil spirits. We see that happen when people leverage spiritual authority to manipulate people, when they try to control people, when they are in positions of authority and they try to control others by saying, well, Jesus told me to. Or I'm doing this because I have the authority of Jesus. Time and time again, when people try to leverage the authority of Jesus and leverage the name of Jesus without a connection and surrender and abiding in the authority of Jesus, what we see is disaster happen over and over again. It never ends well. And some of us have been affected by that. Some of us have been on the receiving end of people leveraging the authority of Jesus for harm and for ill and for control. And if that is you, I am so sorry. That is not what the authority of Jesus looks like. Those people were likely leveraging the authority without, being, without abiding by it. It may, have caught, it may have cast 
a cloud over how you understand authority. It may, may, you, may, may make you apprehensive about even talking about authority. But the authority of Jesus is generative, is freeing, and it's good. And it's accessed not for control. It is accessed for freedom. Now let me remind us how this passage wraps up. We're in an area where there was familiarity with mysticism and magic. And the people have heard a message from Paul. And they've seen that that message is accompanied by signs, by spiritual power, by people being healed, by people being freed in ways that they had never seen before. And people have been starting to follow Jesus. The message has rung true and the power has been there. And then they hear what happens to this group that has been trying to leverage the name of Jesus without being connected to them. And something happens in the people when they hear that story. They realize, in ways that they maybe hadn't realized before, that the way that they understood how the world worked had changed. Had changed. They realize, they realize that it was no longer a question of could you have this sort of cadre of spells or cadre of names of gods or list of names of spirits that you could access in order to have power and gain control? Things are completely different with this Jesus that, Paul's, that Paul preaches. So they start to bring all the magical artifacts that they had kept. These are Christians, people who have started to follow Jesus already. And when they hear what happened to the sons of Sceva, they start to bring all these artifacts. They start to bring all this stuff that they had kept from their old way of doing things. Because how they understood power worked, spiritual power worked, had been challenged, had been shaken, and had been changed. They confess all the things that they are done. They cast off of themselves all the things that they were holding on to, from their previous life. And here's the fruit of that. Here's what it tells us. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. On the other side of this massive moment of surrender, this massive moment of confession, this massive moment of casting off things from the old life and going all in for Jesus and saying, we're not going to hold on to any remnants of a previous way of doing things. We're going to give ourselves Fully to Jesus, the word of God spreads widely and there is greater access to spiritual power. There's a greater release of spiritual power. One of the fruits of surrendering to Jesus is a release of his power. One of the fruits of surrendering to Jesus is a release of his power. So here's the invitation for us today. If you feel like you need to see spiritual power in a way you haven't been able to in your life, in your relationships, in the places and locations that you're at, give yourself fully to Jesus. Give yourself fully to Jesus. All of us, when we come to become followers of Jesus, there are still things from a former life that we hold on to. Sometimes we do it willfully. Sometimes we do it because we are unaware that there are things that we need to let go. Friends, if you want to access greater spiritual power and you find yourself unable to do it, consider whether there might not be something that it's time to surrender. And give yourself fully to Jesus. Hold nothing back and hold on to nothing else. Because if you do, you'll be able to participate 
in greater spiritual power and in breakthrough. I'm going to give, our, I'm going to give us a time to pray. And I want to invite you to explore and consider the areas of your life where you are hoping to see spiritual power break through. Maybe you, and you haven't. Maybe it's people. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's in your own self. Take a time and bring that to mind. What I'm going to do is as you're bringing that to mind, I am going to ask God to show you or speak to you or to reveal to you if there's anything to surrender, if there's anything to confess, if there's anything to let go of, if there's anything you're holding on to that's keeping that from breaking through. And here's the thing. Trust that if something comes to mind, it's not just you making it up. Take a step and believe that God is in this room, that the Spirit wants you to experience the spiritual power He's given us access to. And when it comes to mind, don't hold on to it today any longer. Confess it, let it go, and then invite the Spirit's power. Let me pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Bring to mind the area, the place, the relationship where my friends are looking to access spiritual power. Come to mind. Come, bring it to mind, Lord Jesus. Lord, that it would be inescapable. The place where there can be freedom. The place where there can be healing. The place where peace can come. The place where joy is needed. The place where goodness and love and mercy are waiting at the door. Bring it to mind right now and now, Lord. Now, Lord, show us, show me too, if there is anything that we are holding on to, anything that we are holding back, anything that we are refusing to, we have refused to surrender that needs to die today, that needs to be left behind for spiritual power to break through. And now, Lord, may that word, that picture, that sense be inescapable. May we not write it off. May we leave it here today. Lord, you tell us that if we confess, if we let go, if we turn aside from these things, there is freedom and power on the other side. Lord, may we trust that. May we give ourselves to it. And may we see the breakthrough. In Jesus' name.